people who win once could have been in an environment where everyone around them made them better. People who serially win create an environment where they make everybody else better. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Welcome, everybody. We're really excited to have two guests on our show today. We have with us Bryce Tully, who is a mental performance coach for the Canadian Olympic teams, and Mike Bival for is a performance analyst. Welcome, Bryce and Mike. Thanks for having Hello. us. Thanks for having us. So Bryce, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and talk to us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, how you got into what you're doing? Okay, sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the I'll start with the picture that I shared with you. I was, uh, I was going to school at Acadia University in Wolfville um, when the Vancouver Olympics in, in 2010 were happening. And I remember uh, myself and our three or four roommates um, at the time had organized uh, a party to watch the opening ceremonies. And um, this was right around the time that I was thinking about what was I going to do after school? Did I want to do, you know, a master's program? What did I want my career to be? Um, and kind of right in that like two week window of this happening, um, I had some conversations with who ended up being my, uh, one of my master's uh, supervisors and a uh, pretty pivotal guy, I guess, in, in my uh, path. And um, we talked about, you know, this idea or this concept of, of me starting down the path of sports psychology um, because I was really into coaching, but I was also pretty nerdy and into science and I didn't know, you know, where the two kind of intersected. And um, he kind of brought this to my attention and said, you know, this might be a really, um, good fit for you in, in your career because of these interests that you have. And I took his, his class early on and, and I did really enjoy the, the sports psych class. And I remember watching um, the opening ceremonies and they did such a great job um, in Vancouver. And it was such a big deal because it was in Canada and we were obviously in Canada. Um, and I just remember thinking to myself that if I'm going to do this, like if, if I'm going to do what you know, I think I'm going to do, which is start to really go um, hard down the path of sports psych. Um, I know I'm not going to be able to do it if I don't aim to be at this event. Mm -hmm. And I just knew like at that moment. Um, so, you know, if I'm going to make this decision, I, I have to make it really seriously. And I'm just going to be as ambitious as I possibly can, because I remember like literally having chills watching Team Canada walk in and I had like virtually no connection you know other than it was just the same country that I lived in I didn't really know any of the athletes um I didn't work with any coaches or or anything at that time it was so far fetched almost for me to think that way um but just something something in me was like I just know I'm not going to be able to do this I'm not going to be able to get involved in sport um if I don't reach to do what I think is the most special possible thing in sport and my family's always been really uh, passionate about the Olympics. We always watched the Olympics together as a family. And I think that's why I initiated that, that party or that gathering for everyone to come over. Um, you know, I remember being at the party and 
it, it was in our house, but people were kind of buzzing around me and, and doing other things. And I remember I was just kind of like that frozen person in the middle of the room, like the only one only watching the screen. <laughs> everyone else is kind of like socializing. And I felt like, you know, kind of telling everyone else to shut up because I was so interested in it. Um, but that was just, you know, it's just a moment where I kind of learned, I guess, how much it meant to me. And it was a cool uh, moment of awareness to realize that, you know what, I could get into a career that could allow me to to do this. Like, this is something that obviously means a lot to me, and I, I think I'd like to aim for it. So how did you uh, get started then on this path, and what led you then to being able to actually make that dream happen? So uh, with uh, Dr. Darren Kruselbrink, who... Um, he, so he was the prof at Acadia who kind of started me down this road and, and helped me along the way. Um, he got me uh, matched up with the basketball team at Acadia as an internship um, after I finished my four-year undergrad, kind of as a, um, a buffer between my undergrad and getting involved in my master's because I had asked him, you know, is there something I could do that would help me understand more about this job and this career you know, even just for a short amount of time before I just go ham and jump all in and start <laughs> applying for master's programs. And I mean, um, that's kind of what I did. So you, did, you were set out yourself off for a better track than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should uh, share, um, I guess, you know, selfishly, myself and three of my buddies uh, were planning on doing a Euro trip later that year. So I knew I wasn't going to go ham on anything right away. So I wanted kind of this like, you know, just a semester's worth of kind of just, just dipping my toe in and seeing what's going on. Okay. So yeah, uh, Dr. Kruselbrink hooked me up with the team and uh, long story short, I ended up continuing to work with that team for four years, um, even through my master's all the way to the end. And, and then a little bit after, and we went to national championships here in Canada, three out of the four times, which was really special for that school. It's a very small school. Um, we lost to Carleton by 12 in the semifinals one year, which was, um, you know, the closest basically we ever came. And then Carleton won by 50 in the final. So we really felt like we were kind of the second best team that year. Um, anyway, it was a really special experience. And, you know, I knew kind of right away, like, okay, I love this job. Um, I love coaching, but I love coaching something that no one else seems to be really expert at coaching. And at that time, uh, Steve Bauer, who, who was the head coach uh, of Acadia, who's now one of the assistants with the women's national team um, in Canada, who I also work for now, um, he said to me back then, he said, uh, I'm pretty sure you're doing some things in sports psych right now that strength coaches were doing like 30 or 40 years ago, and everyone thought they were crazy. And he said, I don't think you're crazy, and I'm all for it, and <laughs> you can do whatever you want. I think it's all going to be normal in 20 years. And I thought he was crazy when he said that. <laughs> and now I'm like, he was way more right than I realized. Um, you know, people are just getting more and more interested in this as a high performance tool. Um, and it's become so normal, which again, like to Steve's point, you, you look at it and you go, well, of course it is. It's, you know, the brain is the machine that runs the whole body. How, how could you not train it uh, as much as anything else? It just doesn't make any sense. So. Sure. Um, so yeah, Acadia was the starting point. Um, and then I did my, my master's at Dow. 
uh, I got involved with the Canadian Sports Centre Atlantic, which is um, in Halifax here in Nova Scotia. Um, we're part of a broader network that services uh, a lot of different groups, but primarily um, national teams. And so, you know, over the course of my uh, career since then, I guess it's been a decade, um, you know, just recently for this quadrennial. So since 2016, I got paired up with a couple of different uh, national teams that um, if qualified, we're going to go to the Olympic games and, and some of those have uh, qualified and some are still waiting because of the, the COVID problems. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the general landscape of, of how I got here. Great. Thanks for providing that. We certainly want to dig into high performance, both uh, on the individual sense, but as a, as a team as well. Mike, why don't we switch to you for a minute and why don't you tell us about your story and, and how you got into what you're doing? Sure, yeah. Um, I don't think my path was quite as clear as Bryce's. <laughs> um, you know, it seems like he had this moment of revelation where he figured out that, you know, he wanted to work with high performing athletes and, and Olympic caliber athletes. And, you know, I never had that moment. Um, I, you know, my path was, I was just kind of following um, where my heart was kind of leading me. In the moment. Um, so I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, I went to Dalhousie University. And I actually started off in engineering, and I thought I wanted to be an engineer. Um, you know, I was geared more analytical uh, brain. And I got into my first year of engineering, and I realized they wanted to, to help to try to build something and figure out how this worked. And I just wanted to work out. Um, so I realized I just didn't fit in uh, with with my classmates and and I switched into kinesiology in my first year and that led me down a path that you know made me realize that training and this part of my brain that is better at you know physics and math can really go together um, and so within kinesiology, I started to lean towards biomechanics, performance analysis, data analysis, and data analytics. Um, and so I, I kind of geared my education towards those topics. I ended up doing a master's uh, in biomechanics at Dalhousie. But I still had no idea what I wanted to do with all of this. Um, I was a member of the track team. Um, so I was, I was a sprinter. I was a 100-meter sprinter. Um, and I really loved the science behind training. I loved coaching. I loved trying to analyze what made athletes better, what made myself better. Um, and so, you know, I just started to discover all these things about myself, these, these interests that I had and these, these, these passions, and they just kind of started to merge together. And so I just kind of followed them as they, as they came forward uh, in a very natural progression. Um, so when I first started to do my master's, uh, I got connected with the Canadian Sports Centre Atlantic, the same place that Bryce, uh, Bryce and I both worked at for a number of years. And I started off as a strength and conditioning intern at the Sports Centre. So I was, I, was a, I was a certified strength and conditioning specialist. So I was training the athletes in the gym, uh, getting them, uh, writing them weightlifting programs and, and coaching in that sense it's not what I wanted to do. It's not where I wanted to go. It wasn't my, you know, it was a part of my expertise, but not really what I was trying to build. So I started, uh, I started to learn more and more about biomechanics and eventually an opportunity 
uh, came up with the, Cana uh, the canoe kayak team, the Canadian National Canoe Kayak Team. And I, I started off working with them on a part-time basis, one day a week. And that just kind of grew and grew and grew. And over the next uh, two or three years, I was working full-time with, with the National Canoe Kayak Team. Uh, I was traveling to world championships. I was going to the Olympics. Um, and I was just a fully integrated member of this team. And, and that's, that really uh, culminates, describes my path. If you want to pull up that picture that I sent you, um, it, yeah. it kind of, to me, this, this photo represents the end of that journey for me of discovering what I want to do in life and, and, and how I want to do it. So this is a photo we're in Italy, Milan, Italy at the World Championships for Canoe Kayak. This is Mark DeYoung in the middle. He's, he's the athlete. He's just won the World Championship uh, in the Sprint Kayak 200 meter event. And then his coach, Fred Jobin, um, on, the, on the outside there. And I, I work so closely with these two guys uh, and, and Fred is a coach and it really, really describes, you know, the journey of, of basically from 2012 all the way to Rio 2016, um, the work that I've done and, and you know, the, the development that I went through during that time. So, you know, this picture really symbolizes that. That's awesome. And that's a perfect segue into now starting to pick your brains about the goal of this special series, which is to talk all things high performance. So I'm just going to throw kind of broadly out there and you guys can, you know, start uh, thinking about it a little bit and, and talking to us and sharing your thoughts here. Um, what, what have you learned about high performance and, and what it is and, and how to develop it? Okay, I, I, a few things. Um, I would say, for me personally, um, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the uh, Dunning Kruger. Is it Dunning Kruger? Mm -hmm. Am I saying that properly? Curve. Um, and you know, I I experienced that. Like I did. I did a. I was the keynote speaker at this. Um, Sorry, Siri, Siri's interrupting me. I guess I'm saying things that sound <laughs> close enough to her that she wants to get involved. Um, I was the keynote speaker at a kinesiology conference um, recently, and um, I put that image up of that curve. And, you know, at the start of a presentation, I always try and do something that helps everyone feel the same in a lot of ways, right? Like just because right now I'm the person talking, I mean anything. Um, we, we can all, we're all on the same page on so many things that I want everyone to, to kind of feel that safety in the room. And so I put that image up and I just said, I spent at least the first, you know, the 40% of, 40% uh, of my career at the beginning um, on the top of like Mount Stupid up there, you know, which is <laughs> like the, the slang for <laughs> when you've just got no experience you don't know what you don't know, right? So you're, you think you're great, um, but you just don't know enough to know any better. And so, and then I just explained that process of just like diving into that uh, valley of despair where you start to learn that there's so much knowledge out there and so many different ways of doing things. 
and what do I know, right? Like you're kind of in this state of like, what the heck do I know? And you almost get embarrassed looking back on how confident you were talking to somebody or giving a presentation going, what? Like, what was I thinking? Like, you know, promoting that that's like the best way to do something. I didn't know anything. And, you know, eventually you kind of go up the other side and, you know, I, I don't know exactly how you phrased your, your question at the start, um, but kind of like, what does it take to be high performer or high mm -hmm. performing? I think everybody has to go through a process that resembles that in some way, you know, on the team that is trying to perform really well. Um, it, you know, I, I, I really firmly believe that a, a rising tide floats all boats. Um, and so, you know, you really need a culture behind you and an environment that is going to allow everyone to rise and rise to the point where, um, you know, everyone involved in this pursuit uh, and there's no, no one achieves excellence in isolation. Um, so everyone is all involved in this pursuit is, is kind of functioning at that really high level. There's alignment between people. And, you know, it seems to work really well when, in my experience, when, when people kind of have uh, some awareness of, um, you know, where they are in their, in their own personal journey, but also the vulnerability to, to say, I don't know. And the reason that I shared that first part is um, because, you know, I think of myself on some of these ISTs or high performing teams of staff early in my career. And I, you know, I think I was the weak link because I was pretending like I knew things just to survive and I, and I didn't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, I think it's, you know, looking back, I just think it's a little bit of weakness and vulnerability issues and ego. Um, and it hurts the team. And, you know, eventually you go through that stage where you realize that there's so many great people out there. There's so much knowledge. And that leads you into a place where you become part of a team or a culture where people ask each other questions. They want to know, well, what do you think? Right. You're not going into the room going, I can't wait to have the best idea. You're going into the room going, I hope someone has a better idea than me because I, you know, I can't possibly have the best one, but sometimes yours ends up being the best one. But nonetheless, you're in a room full of people who want to hear from everybody else and understand that, you know, we've all gone through a lot of different experiences and, and it's a group effort. So I would say the number one answer to your question, Lauren, is that um, a rising tide floats all boats that relates to culture. Culture is a, you know, a huge predictor of performance and um, how you contribute as a single staff member to that bigger machine um, is critical really critical and vulnerability is needed to, to I think, contribute um, in a meaningful way, mm. not a surfacey way. I definitely agree with what you say. I don't know if I'm going to add anything more to that, but, you know, I think it's a, I think it's an agreement between team members and staff and everyone involved that we're in this together. We're working on this together and you put your ego aside, you put the politics aside, you, you are able to be vulnerable. You are able to collaborate on a level that isn't just normal. You, you can share ideas and you're, you know, you know that you're safe in those, in those ideas that you share, even if they're wrong, you know, we're trying to move towards the same goal. And when I was working with canoe kayak, you know, and working with Fred, the coach, I could, I felt so safe. I could bring any idea to him, he wouldn't be insulted. He knew we're trying to 
achieve greatness here. We're trying to win a world championship or an Olympic medal. So there's no, there's no bad ideas. And, and so, you know, a state of high performance is really once you've achieved this, this agreement with everyone you're working with or, or with your team that we're in this together and we're trying, we're, we have the same goals. We're aligned towards these goals and, and we're just trying to do that together. You know, I'm not trying to do it on my own or take all the credit for it. We're, we're really in this together. And I wanted to follow up with Bryce's earlier comment. When you mentioned that uh, you yourself had kind of acted as if you knew the answer, um, that also made me think there's bound to be athletes or other individuals that you work with who um, are afraid themselves of looking like they might not know what they're doing. Um, do you feel that that's a common hindrance? And do you, does it create better trust? Um, I guess it would create better trust if they were open. Um, but I guess the real question is, do they usually find that out on their own or do you have to actively intervene to get them to become um, more aware that they can admit their faults? I know that's a lot of words. Yeah, no, that's a good one. <laughs> so the, the place that I would start with that is, you know, you, it's a really specific area that you're honing in on, but I think it, it's kind of related to a much bigger topic, which is, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that there's kind of three things at play um, when you're working with an, with an individual, but also more importantly, when you're working with a group of individuals trying to work with each other. And those three things are values um, is a big one, you know, personal values, um, as well as the, the values of kind of the broader group that we all have to align with in some capacity to have success. Um, skills are the next part. And, you know, Lauren and I are um, certainly heavily involved in the mental skill building process with a lot of different people and performers. Um, and then the last piece is, is their personality or their wiring and, and people have natural differences between them. Um, and all of those are connected to your question. So that's why I, <laughs> that's why I, I raised those three things. But the one that I think is most important um, is the values piece. And, you know, that's why we do invest a lot of time in, in helping athletes um, uh, understand their own personal values and how that's going to act as a filtering process to the way that they engage and, and interact in these types of situations. And, you know, ideally, um, an athlete or a performer, anybody has at least one or two values that helps them filter the way that they behave in those examples that you gave, um, you know, to the point where they're able to be honest, open, accountable. Um, you know, if, if they don't have a value that's hitting on some of those things, it's, that's a problem in and of itself. And they might value it. They just don't, they haven't yet invested uh, deeply enough in, in their values as a skill. Um, and as a, as a way to kind of filter their thinking and their behavior that things like ego get in the way. But, but if you ask someone who's acting, who's acting egotistically, would you say ego is one of your highest values? They're not going to say yes to that. Right. So, you know, this, this point of ego is coming from, they're actually defying their own values in service of their ego because it's so strong and evolutionary that it just kind of pulls you and pulls you, which is why you need to, you know, build your values to the same level of strength as something like ego so that they can actually have a fair fight. Um, otherwise it's just, it's never going to work out. But the main thing that you're asking about, um, 
in terms of openness, you know, that, that I think in itself would be, it's kind of a weird one because it's right between values and skills. Like it is a value, um, but you can certainly build that skill from a, from a mental, emotional standpoint in different situations. Um, it's also a personality factor. Well, yeah. One of the, one of the personality models. Openness to experience would be, you know, mm -hmm. its own personality factor as well. So uh, again, I just go back to all three of those things are at play. I like to think of mental skills as kind of the glue between all other things. So values, you know, the rate of change on values is medium. The rate of change on personality is very slow, but the rate of change on skills is high. So if your values aren't aligning in a situation and your personality is causing trouble in a training camp, in a day or two, we can, you know, educate some skills and build some skills that might patch some of that up. But the ideal is all three are working in conjunction with each other to be aligned with the task at hand. And you're coming at it, you know, based on Kevin's question, you're coming at it from the individual perspective, but both of your answers to the original high performance question really talked about the culture and, and kind of teamwork piece, which is the other piece of mm -hmm. it, right? That any person can only do yeah. so much depending on the environment that they're in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's and, and what's then, so tricky, right? About high performing teams is that it requires uh, more than just the individual be in that space of, you know, having the ability to, to develop that in themselves. Absolutely. In, in our Canada basketball curriculum, which is still in development, but one of the things that's really um, uh, consistent throughout it for the past number of years is, is this pyramid. And on the bottom of the pyramid is the word conscious. And conscious is, you know, it's like, it's all that self-awareness skills, mindfulness, know, knowing yourself, your strengths, your roles. Um, and then right above that is connected. And connected is it's a smaller chunk of the triangle and it's certainly not the foundation but it's the next most important piece so it's how do you take that conscious foundation of knowing yourself and then translate it up into a way that allows you to be more connected with those around you by using and leveraging that knowledge about yourself mm -hmm. and so i think that's kind of how those things work together but you certainly want to start with you with you and then work on me work on us and then work together basically Throughout your careers, both of you, you know, what are some of the things that you've learned or maybe some of the defining moments that have helped you learn about how to help develop high performers or the approaches that you utilize to do so? I'm going to leave this one to Mike. <laughs> um, that's an interesting question, especially from my perspective, because, you know, I, I played a, a really a, a secondary role in developing a high performer. I was supporting the coach. Um, and so I think a big part of this is, is role clarity and knowing where you fit into the picture. Because it, you know, if you don't have a clear sense of what you're doing or where you fit in, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna be causing a whole bunch of mess in a whole bunch of different areas. Whereas you know, in my role, I knew exactly what I had to do I knew what I was responsible for, which was measuring data and presenting that data to the coach and filtering it to the athlete as well. And being able to communicate that in a way that makes sense in the, in the bigger picture and helping the coach 
build better training plans for the athlete. Um, so I think just knowing, knowing your role and where you fit in can, can really contribute to the development of, of high performance and high performance in, in a high performance environment. Um, I'd say that was probably the one of the biggest lessons that I learned over, over my time working, you know, you, you don't need to be the center of attention, uh, you know, in, in a, in a collaborative environment, you know, you can really own the role that you're, that you've been given and excel at it at a high level and just focus on doing the job that you're supposed to do as, as good as possible. And, and I see that a lot in, in high performance environments is, people know what they need to be doing and they invest in doing that role specifically really well. You guys are getting a great dose of one of Mike's greatest attributes, which is humility. And I just like <laughs> to, to add to something that Mike said about Mike. Mike has been the undisputed king for like a decade of high impact, low profile. And that is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off as a support staff. Sure. And everybody notices it about Mike, which is weird because how do you have everyone noticing something that's so low profile? <laughs> you have to be really high impact and that's what he does. So that statement combined with what you said earlier, Bryce, about you were doing, someone told you you were doing things that were revolutionary basically. Um, was it a hard sell and is that sell getting easier? Uh, what have you noticed about that trend? Well, let me put some context to that example. I'm just a, a guy walking into Steve's office who's basically just like proclaimed his interest in a topic with very little, you know, expertise or, or um, experience in it. And I had pulled up on the screen. I said, Steve, I want you to watch this. And it was a video of biathletes and uh, the breathing that they do you know, when they go, they transition from that uh, high intensity skiing to this uh, super, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mindful moment uh, where they're trying to aim at this target with a heart rate of 180. Um, and the video was quick, but it just showed, you know, here's how we take our, our breath down quickly. And, and I said, I think this is related to free throws. And he said, I know it is. And I was like, okay, so, you know, we should do a session on this and then maybe we should do it on the floor. And Steve was like, are you telling me you want to, like, you're going to coach the team on the floor? <laughs> and he like with a judgmental kind of tone to it. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of proposing that I'd like to do an exercise in practice. And he, I remember he just kind of took a second and he's like, okay, I'm going to try it. But I've never, ever seen this happen before. Like with someone in your field or, or anything. And it's, you know, I just, he was just letting me know it's a little bit of a vulnerable moment for me as the head coach of this team. And it was after that moment, you know, the next day or sometime that week that he was like, I think you might be onto something here. Like, why aren't we doing more of this in practice? So, so that was the, that was kind of that moment where he, you know, he thought, geez, we go to the weight room every day and everyone thinks that's mm -hmm. totally normal. It doesn't involve a basketball or hoops or anything else you know, what could we be doing in this other space that doesn't necessarily involve the basketball and hoops that could make us better? And also, you know, how do we bring more of that onto the floor? Because it was also very common to train your body in practice, right? Like you do 
a lot of endurance stuff on the on the court they do sprints back and forth like you know that's just training your body it's not training the technical or tactical skills of basketball so he was really intrigued by that and i i've always been thankful for his openness to my ideas because it i think it kick-started you know my need for innovation and, and um you know collaboration with coaches on, on how to bring psychology into the field of play and and into their training environment just consistently and has it been met with resistance at all even outside of your own circles that people think you're doing strange things or has that waned <laughs> if it ever happened oh yeah it's not just people who think we're doing strange things there's athletes on the team that you work with who think you're doing strange things <laughs> And sometimes those athletes are the most influential, they're the highest profile, they're, you know, in, in ESPN in some cases, um, and they walk into a meeting with you and they'll basically tell you to your face, you know, I don't really value this or um, I'm just doing this because it's in the schedule or the coach said I have to do it. And at that point, it just becomes a challenge. And I've even, you know, tried to be funny with these people sometimes and I'll say, you're telling me same <laughs> like i didn't schedule this in but let's get it done but just trying to find a way to to make them you know make them feel comfortable and eventually i think they realize you know if what you're doing is good and what you're doing works so if i'm doing exercises that are effective um in these sessions that i'm having with athletes you know in the daily schedule um they're going to notice the, the impacts on the floor and if they're not noticing any impacts you know if they're resisting so hard um, that, you know, they're just not getting anything out of it, then that's a different issue that rarely happens, but needs to be addressed. But most times, you know, they're, they notice, they notice something because it's, it's good stuff. I mean, it, it fundamentally changes the way you think and the way your brain works. So it's probably going to show up at some point, ideally. <laughs> what, what percentage of those that do see the improvement, what percentage admit that you were onto something? Oh, um, so this one player who's super high profile, who's given me a hard time for basically three years, like, oh, that sounds like this would have us do. Like, you know, when someone suggests something weird, um, that player uh, did something in practice that we had talked about, like actually changed her behavior in a practice and looked over and kind of pointed at me and gave a little like, like a smile. And I was like, it was like the best day of my life. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike what about you have you had experiences where people were resistant and then they either saw your data or felt their own improvement and became on board absolutely there's you know when you're walking into a new environment uh, or a new position you, you have to deal with the old guard in a way or the old ways of doing things and and you know things have changed so much in the realm of coaching and, and the amount of information that coaches use has increased tremendously. Um, and I came into a sport that was very traditional in its, in its uh, methods. And I was bringing in technology and I was bringing in measurement and, and trying to quantify things. Um, and so there, there is that resistance curve, like, like Bryce mentioned, you know, the thing that I really tried to introduce in, in uh, canoeing was the measurement of KPIs, key performance indicators and trying to educate the coaches that you can, you can boil down performance to a couple of key variables 
that you should really pay attention to. And at first, the reason why I had such good relationship with Fred, the coach that I was working with, is he bought into that right away. He was the first coach that said, I'm all about that. Let's do that. And to Bryce's point, once you start to see success with the methods that you're introducing, other people buy into it. Other people see, well, all these guys are successful. There must be something to that. I'm going to start to integrate that into my practice. And so, you know, over the, over about a six year period, it went from, you know, this fringe thing that me and this coach were doing, which was measuring key performance indicators really frequently to every coach doing it. And now it's the standard and it just takes time. It takes, it takes success. You know, other people, it's kind of like that adoption rate curve. You got the early adopters that are going to be like, I'm all about this. And then you got the late adopters that aren't going to jump in until those early adopters have kind of proven that this is, this is the the key to success. Um, And and it's just, it's just a normal part of uh, people's personalities and the way that people are. Um, But the, the key to all that is, you know, you have to prove yourself first um, in order for, for that resistance to kind of be dropped. So Bryce mentioned seeing something on diving and he applied it to basketball. What, what was your first exposure to similar techniques, Mike? Biathlon shooting, not diving. <laughs> was it not swimming? <laughs> my, my internet's really bad over here so it's not your fault it was okay. biathlon <laughs> okay well it, it it it's interesting because in in uh it's interesting that in sport you see silos within sports right so you grow up in this culture that is you know playing basketball or track and field or canoe kayak you grow up in these silos and then all you know, your whole world is kind of built around these, these traditions. And what Bryce said was a really good example of bringing a, a, a method from another sport into this sport. And, you know, my background was track and field. That's what I did. That's what I coach. And I had all these examples that these canoe coaches were like, these are great ideas. How, why have we never heard of them? it blows my mind how little cross communication actually occurs between these silos um, within sport. There's so much wisdom to be shared between one sport to another um, that are essentially doing the same thing. Um, That just doesn't get shared because, you know, these people, it's like these early adopters, they just don't cross these, these imaginary borders. Um, and that's, that's a concept that I think probably applies to many domains in the world, not just to sport, but just in, ter- in terms of how humans tend to organize themselves into these, these categories and clusters. And we don't tend to share information across these borders and, and you know, try to broaden our horizons a little bit. Have there been times for, for either or both of you where you've had to change or evolve what you're doing or how you're doing it? Yep, for sure. Um, I wanted to, I made this pitch to Canada basketball that um, it was something like we have 70,000 thoughts a day and 
you know, 50,000 of those are, are proven to be, you know, about the future of the past. And, you know, that, that unconscious thoughts, you know, factually travel at five times the speed of, of conscious ones. And I had this elaborate argument that all the evidence says that if we want our athletes to have high quality thinking that's uh, in the right direction and in big moments that we need to do it every day. Like we need to, we need to take a habit forming approach to thinking mm -hmm. and we can't just leave it, you know, to their own devices and expect that guiding them towards certain outcomes means that they're having these really high quality directed thoughts along the way. So I was promoting or proposing, I should say, this idea of having what's called a thought lab where they, uh, they come in for half an hour every single day and and work on mindfulness and biofeedback and neurofeedback and and hook them up to things and so they can see the the impact of these different ways of thinking but just basically just the argument was we need to accumulate thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions yeah. of noticing distraction and thinking about certain things for it to become even close to you know expected in these moments and so i did that and the athletes um you know, eventually it became obvious that the athletes needed something a little more stimulating to stay really engaged in this. And so we, uh, I set up a competition with a whiteboard and I put the whiteboard up in the lunchroom. And so we just invested in this biofeedback back program that, you know, the quality of your self-regulation dictated like the speed of your jet ski and you're going around the course and, <laughs> but it gave you like times, it gave you like, here's your track record. Mm -hmm. and, and so I divided them into teams and we, and we had a, you know, a week long competition and it just changed everything. Like they, they came into the lunchroom and all the results are up there and they, they were having five, 10 minute conversations about self-regulation that they didn't think were about self-regulation. Like they were talking about how like the one time someone was facing the wrong direction for a whole lap and all these other things. But to me, I was like, this is perfect. Like I just needed to make this one little change that made it more suited to this population. And all of a sudden, you know, and what a naive thought to think like we should, you know, we can do anything in our environment that isn't competitive with a group of Olympians, but like, it's like, duh. But, but once I, once I came to that realization and made the change, they just wanted to win. They just wanted to beat each other. And, you know, uh, selfishly, um, the only way they could win was to learn to be better at self-regulation. <laughs> so it worked out great. <laughs> For some reason that reminded me of, I've always been amazed at these, uh, like corporations or these factories, they'll have these safety competitions. You know, like if you don't hurt yourself for X number of days, you get a television. And I'm like, isn't the real prize not hurting yourself? <laughs> but I guess if you make a competition, everybody uh, goes for it, right? That that's a, a whole yeah, that's a uh, Pandora's box of uh, issues around motivational strategies. But in this one case where there was no risk at play, it was it was the one. It was the right strategy. <laughs> So what about for you, Mike? Have sorry, Kevin. For you, okay. Mike, have there been times where you've had to change or evolve? I mean, technology is constantly changing and evolving, right? Yeah, it's just. Uh, I, I think it's a continuous evolution process, and that you know, I think of every year that went by, and you know, it, none of them were like the previous year. 
So you're always trying to reinvent yourself. You're always trying to bring in new elements uh, to what you're doing, trying to improve upon yourself. And I think that's, you know, that's another really fundamental part of high performance is you're trying to be better every year and you're trying to learn from yourself. Um, you know, I coach track and field. And when I first started to coach track and field, I tried to learn from everybody that was out there, all the coaches that are out there. And over time, I realized that, you know, you are probably the most rich source of learning than anyone else out there. You can produce your own learnings um, through studying what you actually do, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so I think having those habits where you take the time to reflect and review on what you do and how you do it and how did it work and just being honest with yourself about about those things um, will help you in your career and will help you towards a path of, of performing at a higher level and the people that perfect that ultimately end up performing really well 10 or 20 years down the road um, once they've accumulated this this wisdom that they can generate on their own so it's it's so powerful sure and you both mentioned roughly a time frame of five or six years where people began to adopt some of the techniques. Um, do you notice the competition getting stiffer during those adoption periods or how does that work? Yeah, I, it, it, the, that's the thing about high performance uh, sport. It's everybody is moving towards being the best. Um, and so when you think, oh, we've got this advantage, it's our secret, we're going to be so much better. You look out there and, and it, all the rest of the world is, is they're trying to improve as well. Um, and so that's what makes it such a unique and, and challenging task. Um, it's, it's really difficult to stay ahead of, of the rest of the world uh, in some of these things. So, and what, what, what I've noticed in particular is that if you do discover something that's very unique, so I think in the work that we were doing, we had a few concepts and methods that were very unique and we benefited from them with the athletes we were working with. Within one or two years, the rest of the world are using them, have adapted, right? So it's, to Bryce's point, it's competitive. It's competitive within the athletes, it's competitive in the world and it's you know if you don't constantly evolve you're going to get left behind pretty quickly and you mentioned it being a secret or many of these techniques considered trade secrets at least temporarily or in the beginning 100 percent. we oh, yeah. uh I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll tell you uh i'll tell you a story of a, of a project that we worked on the rest of the world's caught up now, so I can share this. <laughs> but in uh, 2013, we did a project where we flew to Newfoundland and we flew some boats to Newfoundland and we were doing testing in a, in a our national research uh, centers, 200 meter indoor water tank where they would tow boats through it. And for us, this was the perfect testing laboratory to put a kayak in it and have, a, have an athlete sprint through it. So we're in like this industrial kind of park 
it's indoors, it's dingy, you know, there's, it's really industrial and we have an athlete, you know, in the water and we're testing different things and the amount of innovation that we're able to get out of that project, you know, put us ahead of the rest of the world by a couple hundredths of a second, a couple tenths of a second. And it was a huge lead. Now, you know, three or four years later, we kept this a secret. We see pictures on Instagram and Twitter of other countries doing the exact same thing. And, you know, having their athletes and their towing tanks doing some research and, and pushing the boundaries too. So it's, it's hard. You it's had hard a to... mole and <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But if you do something well, other people will copy you. Other people will notice and other people will copy it. Does it require someone with knowledge or can some of these things be retro engineered? Like you see it and you kind of get a sense of what, I mean, I guess that now that I'm saying it, it seems too far fetched to be able to figure it out, but uh, does it have to be someone sharing? Is that usually how the word gets out? Uh, I think it's uh, you pay very close attention to your opponents and you notice everything of your opponents when you're at that level you notice if they have a different haircut um, on that particular day when they performed really well. Um, so you, you have a heightened awareness of the people you're competing against and what they're doing. And that information, it filters into your, your debriefing and your, your analysis. And, and then you try, to de- you try to deconstruct it a little, you know, and I think it, some people logically can think through it and they can really understand and be like this, they did this and it led to this. You know, I think that's a really big part of high performance is having an intelligence program where you're able to study other people's success mm-hmm. and to actually be able to distill why these people are successful. I think the human brain will, do, will kind of associate some reasons to it oh, because of these things. But the, the teams that are performing at a really high level have a really strong capability of looking at another country or another team and saying, oh, this is why they're successful. Here are the factors why they're successful. And this is how we have to adapt to that, to be able to counter it or to be even better. Sure. And at that level, at least for funding purposes and other reasons you're asked, right? To kind of profile not only yourself, but some of the other high performers out there to, to analyze those things. Absolutely. You can- I, I would just add, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I was just gonna say, you can let other people do the research for you <laughs> and then study them. I think there's two parts though to your question um, around like retroactively, like, you know, reverse engineering some of these strategies. There, there's the, the cultural value of these things and then there's the execution and, and they're both very difficult. So like in Mike's example of going to the tow tank, you have to value research and you have to value data and you have to value all the information and stuff that's coming out of that to even bother doing it. But then there's the execution, which is now what do we do? <laughs> with all this data and like, how do we utilize it to, to make a difference? And I think those two things are always at play. And I remember being in, um, in Spain at world championships two years ago before. So right before our Olympic qualification stuff got announced with basketball and 
the MPC of Belgium was was really keen to to kind of just meet and talk and um, connect and create this relationship. And I, I didn't need to be told this because I knew it in 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 my mind already as this was happening. But eventually, it was you know it was said to me because I brought this up in a staff meeting. Um, you know, a higher up at Canada Basketball was like, I, I wouldn't. I'd be careful about what you share with that person. Mm -hmm. And then it sparked this, this big debate. And, you know, part of the debate was, well, they're, they're kind of a rival. They're right in our bracket of, of sort of uh, world standings and who we need to make sure we're beating consistently to get to the podium, which is obviously where we want to be. And it sparked this debate on value versus execution among the staff. And, you know, some staff were saying that it doesn't, they could know everything we do and it won't matter because they need to execute it. And then there was other staff saying, yeah, but we're going to teach them that we really value, you know, mindfulness as an example. Like, can they then value mindfulness enough that in two years they can learn to start to execute on it? So funny enough, we ended up playing Belgium in basically a do or die game to qualify for the Olympics. And uh, we beat them and in Belgium at home. And then the next day they had to, they had to beat another team to qualify and they did. Um, and that same MPC, we kind of met in the hall and she was having champagne and, and she said, Oh, you keep things really close to the chest in Canada. And I remember just saying, yeah, we want to win. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you both are kind of working together now on a, a new venture, uh, a project that really centers around this idea of, of high performing cultures, not in sport, correct, but now in business. Tell us a little bit about what led to this and, and what you're working on. That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a pretty unique story of how it came together. Um, you know, people, it, it comes back to that theme of, of crossing paths and people like me in my role don't tend to cross paths with people like Bryce in his role. <laughs> you know, we're separate. The mental performance person and the video or the data person just not talk to each other. <laughs> you um, guys don't come out of hiding very often. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, They're so objective. We're so subjective. <laughs> yeah, right. We're from different worlds. Um, but but Bryce and I were friends within our work. We didn't, we didn't, we worked together a little bit on, on some uh, projects, um, but we were friends and our desks were right next to each other. So we would chat, you know, pretty frequently. And one of these days, you know, Bryce and I are having a conversation like, how do we measure, how do we start to predict how athletes will overperform or underperform in different scenarios? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we shared kind of this, this passion and this, this dream about being able to quantify a lot of the mental aspects of performance. And I wanted to bring the, the, the analytics and the, the, the predictions to that side of things. Like, let's just merge our, our, our areas. So we started to work on different projects together. And the more we worked on them, the more we realized and the more we practiced you know, we can build products, we can, you know, we can bring this to life, we can bring our ideas to life through this medium. And it was within the last year and a half that we started to talk more and more about team culture. 
and understanding that the culture of an organization really impacts its performance. It's huge. It comes back to those KPIs that I help to coaches understand impact their performance. Well, culture is one of those KPIs. And every CEO and every company that we've spoken to and every coach understands the culture of our organization dictates our performance to a large extent. And we, the more we probed at that, the more we realized, well, how do you measure culture? How do we have a conversation about what is your culture? You know, it was kind of like this, this very mystical concept. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's really where the, the brains, the different sides of the brains of, of Bryce and I came together to, to start to merge, you know, Bryce's experience and understanding of, of culture with my understanding on the technical side of measuring things and the technology behind it. Um, and we just pursued this path. And the, the further we went down that path, the more and more we realized that, you know, there's a necessity for tools to help organizations monitor their culture, build their culture, and understand their culture. And what's the name of your partnership? Uh, our, our company is called InnerLogic. Yeah, Mike, Mike did a nice job describing um, its origin. The only thing I would add is I, I, way back when we were starting this, I said to Mike, the only way I can describe what I'm picturing is like, three people interact with each other and imagine they all have like a digital thing above their head that's showing how that interaction is like impacting their mood, their performance, their motivation, their, their alignment with the team, their connection, like all these things. If we had like this barometer <laughs> digitally above everyone's heads, these three people interact and they all walk away and go back to their desks. You know, what just happened? Like what, what was said? How did the, people feel and, and what's the impact that that has on, on their performance. How distracting was it for them? You know, did it occupy their mind for a long time? Did they feel like less, you know, that they feel like a, a lower sense of belonging in this group now or more? Um, and then I just said, you know, imagine like these massive organizations, you times that by whatever. Um, how much does that cost? Like, who, who does anyone have this information? So we basically set on this path to, to hit us, you know, close to that target as we could um, in terms of just really trying to nail down um, the kind of quantitative output of a lot of these interactions and teams. And I think the real difference maker that we're trying to hone in on is uh, that culture is a performance uh, predictor. And if you, if you monitor and measure it the right way and, and you can really diagnose it in real time that, um, you know, the ability to predict predict your performance is just going to have this massive impact in your team or in your organization because the data doesn't, you know, doesn't lie. It's not, you're no longer that CEO walking around hoping that people are working well together or feeling like things might be off or using gut impressions or noticing little things from your leaders. And then two months go by and you get this like, you know, quarterly report saying, yeah, things have gotten worse. And you know, now we got to invest two months in fixing it. It's like, well, 
what's going on in between all of these data points? Can't we do this, you know, in real time and just almost like capture these problems in their infancy? Um, because that's what Mike does, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like Mike, Mike does that with, can, with canoes, you know, you have a training session and if something's not going well, we don't want to times that by 65 days and just let it keep getting worse and worse and worse and then go, yeah, geez, we had, you know, we just got some data on the way your boat's moving in the water and it's crap. And it's been like that for two or three months. You know, if we can identify that that day, it's deliberate feedback that they can then uh, utilize and, and make some adjustments going into the following practice. And, and that's really the model that we've kind of tried to transfer over to, uh, to this concept of, of culture, basically. I would imagine too, knowing a little bit about, you know, culture, obviously, but also what you guys are trying to do, that it's also about trying to capture the keys to success and the things that are going right so that you can know what to, to keep and to maintain and try to foster. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Celebrating successes, you know, identifying strengths. And I know the strengths finder people would love to hear me say that you, you do want to lean into your strengths as much as you can. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great space to be in because, you know, culture, you can have low culture. And so solving that issue, there's an obvious, you know, value gain from that. But improving your culture, even if it's really great, still has a value gain there. And we're, we're trying to offer tools to companies for the whole spectrum. So if, you're, if you just can't get a handle on certain departments, people just can't get along, it's affecting performance. Well, we have tools to be able to handle that. And then on the other side, we've got teams that are killing it the best culture we've ever seen. Everyone loves it. Everyone's getting along. Mm. Well, here are some tools to keep that going and to make it even better. Um, yeah, because it's, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Sure. And culture is such a fluid and dynamic thing, right? Making sure, I mean, there's always going to be those ebbs and flows, even if you are that great culture, right? <laughs> Present situation, pandemic, you know, <laughs> a testament to that, right? That something always, can, can always come up that forces the need to at least evolve, you know, not necessarily make changes, but evolve some things or adapt some things. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how working from home affects mm -hmm. teams' cultures. And, you know, the data that I've been reading suggests that people are actually more productive at home, but their morale has suffered. You feel disconnected from the people you're working with course because you're not with them or you're you know you're not connecting with them on the same level as you used to and also productivity is also high because you're working more right more hours mm. less breaks yeah. so that sustainability of that <laughs> is certainly something to take into consideration on the performance side mm. <laughs> yeah you're not distracted by having Mike right in front of you who's a friend and talking <laughs> <laughs> or having that commute that you've got to take into consideration yeah yeah, yeah. So what advice would you give an aspiring performer or business person, athlete or business person? Well, the advice that I would give is to understand your key performance indicators. Invest in understanding those really, really well. Make sure you know the right key performance indicators. <laughs> um, I think that's the biggest, the, the most impactful thing that a a leader or you know a coach can do in anything i think mine would be 
I'm going to take the, the nerdy mental route on this one. I'm not going to go big philosopher. <laughs> At least I'll appreciate um, it, Bryce. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think mine would be that uh, I would say the, the most important advice that I would give is that is that when you're usually when you're off track, uh, it's because you've just paid attention to the wrong things. So it, it you know, you always have control of that attention. Um, you can switch your attention on a dime if you have to. So just take ownership for, um, you know, the reasons that things are going well or not going well and, and really pay attention to your attention. <laughs> So Kevin and I actually met, uh, Kevin is Anders Ericsson's doc student, former doc student, and uh, cool. we met uh, studying expert performance under a project that was, you know, kind of top-down headed by Anders. Um, and one, so one of the questions we always ask everybody is really stems from the nature-nurture debate, you know, the, what do we really think contributes to expert, the development of expertise and, and high performance? So. For each of you, what are your thoughts surrounding that? How much do you think is attributable to quote unquote nature? How much do you think is attributable to the nurture side of things? Oh, tough question, because I think it's both and I think they're both equally valid. Um, you know, in a sport like track and field, in a sport like can you kayak, an individual sport, there are certain physical qualities you must have. That is nature 100%. But at the same time, there are certain mental qualities you must have to achieve, to utilize that talent. And the nurture side of things, it, it makes such a difference. So you, nature is, you just, you can't have that success without both, both sides of the equation. I mean, yeah, I'm going to. I can't disagree with my <laughs> obviously both play a role, uh, but I'm going to take uh, door C and I'm actually going to say choice. Um, I think there's nature, there's nurture, and then there's choice. And, you know, you think about, um, you know, I know Peter Jensen, who's awesome um, sports psychologist in, in like legend sports psychologist in Canada. Um, you know, he has a whole book on, on this nature of choice as the third factor. And I never forgot, you know, his opening statement in the book is, is about Nelson Mandela. And, um, you know, you put someone in, in basically the worst nurture space you could be in, the worst environment, you know, in, in prison, falsely imprisoned. Um, and, you know, choices are made right? Like you have to make a choice. You have to make a really tough choice that no one else can make for you to, to want to come out of that better than when you went in, despite the worst possible environment that you could be in. So I think there's a lot of evidence to say it, it is both like Mike said, but choice is a huge part of it. Choosing where you want to put your energy. And then both of your observations, um, have you noticed anything that you can identify that separated those who went on to achieve what they were seeking versus those who didn't? Anything you can pinpoint? It's so complex. It's a crafty way of asking the same question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, what did you say? I was just gonna say it's so, it's so complex. There's the circumstances just align so well in those circumstances, in those um, examples. 
Um, there's definitely some commonalities between people that are serially successful yeah. and the mindsets that they have and the work ethic. Um, and that stands out to me. There's huge commonalities there. That's a great point. You bring up the idea of kind of the one hit wonder versus someone who's able to achieve, you know, repeated success, which is something very different. Yeah. There's a, there's a unique uh, subset of high performers, the, you know, the ridiculous high performers who are serially successful. You know, there's, there's only a handful of those types of people. And, and I've noticed that a lot of them have very, very similar traits in the work ethic department in the mindset department um, and the way that they handle adversity, the way they perceive adversity, um, the threat level when they're under pressure, you know, how, how threatened they are by that, how they thrive under that pressure. It's almost this universal trait that exists in these ultra serially successful performers. And what about tolerance for, uh, sorry, Bryce, uh, I didn't see, yeah. uh, but no. just one more, one more follow up on his, uh, what about tolerance for letting themselves be unsuccessful, at least temporarily, uh, is that part of it? So I didn't get it right today, but there's always tomorrow. I think so. I think it's, it's a, it's like a craving to be successful or to win. They, they have it. And so if, if they have a setback, it only motivates them even more. Um, and, and it just, they, they thrive on that, on that feeling. And then Bryce, you were saying, or tried to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just say that the, my, my two answers to that, Mike nailed a, a really key difference in the difference between someone who's done it once versus a serial winner. I don't think those are apples to apples situations. Um, and I think the key differences are this. Number one is resilience. And by resilience, I think Mike nailed the first part, which is you know the ability to withstand pressure. But part two being the ability to bounce forward. So we're not trying to bounce back to where we were. We're trying to bounce forward. We're trying to actually get better like a lacrosse ball when you spin it and watch it take that huge leap, you know, that, that you see a lot um, from those failures and those people. Um, the other part of, of this is, and this is totally anecdotal, but people who win once could have been in an environment where everyone around them made them better. People who serially win create an environment where they make everybody else better right? Like you are better because you work with Mark DeYoung, that athlete that Mike shared at the start. He makes his whole staff better. He knows how to connect. Um, I've seen people win once who just had a, a staff that, you know, everyone was committed to making you better, but that only lasts so long. External forces. Sure. I was going to say everything you both have said to kind of this topic relates to the culture piece too, right? There's a difference between the the team that wins once versus the one mm -hmm. that can sustain that over many times and over the long term. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up here, what are for each of you the biggest takeaways from your story or your path? You go first, Mike. I need a hot second. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I, this is, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that path. Um, and this has been a really good reflection on, on some of the, the things that ultimately led me to where I am. 
I, I think, you know, not worrying about where you're going and, and, you know, being more in the moment and, and pursuing your passions, you know, trying to be deliberate about pursuing your passions um, or is ultimately going to help you on that journey. And I think if I, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would just really focus in on trying to pursue my passions really well and, and things work out. Oh my gosh. That is such a, it, it, Mike, it's such a good point Mike made about, we might think that we reflect on our path, but I don't, I mean, I don't think you really do until someone, you know, nails it down and asks you to dig into all these things. And, you know, I could probably do this. It'd be boring as hell, but I could probably do this for eight hours, like talk <laughs> about my path, but nobody would care to listen. Not even me, which is probably why I don't do it enough. Um, but I think the, the main thing I've, I've learned from my path is everybody, people achieve success in different ways. And a mistake I've made in the past is to just put too much um, stake in how someone else is doing it. And I think we're naturally wired to just kind of mirror those around us um, and, and try and, you know, uh, adapt and become that thing um and i've done that too many times and and kind of got to that place where i wanted to be like you know i'm doing it like this other person or i did the thing that they did and it just didn't work out the way that i thought it would and there was something special or unique about the way i was going to do it that i should have been brave enough to do myself well, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us today Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.